The Events at Porth Farm by T. E. D. Klein Part 1 As soon as the phone stops ringing, I'll begin this affidavit. Lord, it's hot in here. Perhaps I should open a window. Thirteen rings. It has a sense of humor. I suppose that ought to be comforting. Somehow I'm not comforted. If it feels free to indulge in these teasing, tormenting little games, so much the worse for me. Summer's over now, but this room is like an oven. My shirt is already drenched and this pen feels slippery in my hand. In a moment or two, the little drop of sweat that's collecting above my right eyebrow is going to splash onto this page. Just the same, I'll keep the window closed. Outside, through the dusty panes of glass, I can see a boy in red spectacles sauntering towards the courthouse steps. Perhaps there's a telephone booth in back. Sense of humor. That's one quality I never noticed in it. I saw only a deadly seriousness, and it's clear, an intelligence that grew at terrifying speed, malevolent and inhuman. If it now feels itself safe enough to toy with me before doing whatever it intends, so much the worse for me. So much the worse, perhaps, for us all. I hope I'm wrong. Though my name is Jeremy, derived from Jeremiah, I'd hate to be a prophet in the wilderness. I'd much rather be a harmless crank. But I believe we're in for trouble. I'm a long way from the wilderness now, of course, though perhaps not far enough to save me. I'm writing this affidavit in room 2K of the Union Hotel overlooking Main Street in Flemington, New Jersey, 20 miles south of Gilead. Directly across the street, hippies lounging on its steps, stands the county courthouse where Bruno Hauptmann was tried back in 1935. Did they ever find the body of that child? Hoptiman undoubtedly walked down those very steps, now lined with teenagers savoring their last week of summer vacation. Where that boy in the red spectacles sits sucking on a cigarette. Did the killer once halt there, police and reporters around him, and contemplate his imminent execution? For several days now, I've been afraid to leave this room. I have... Perhaps been staring too often at that ordinary-looking boy on the steps. He sits there every day. The red spectacles conceal his eyes. It's impossible to tell where he's looking. I know he's looking at me. But it would be foolish of me to waste time worrying about executions when I have these notes to transcribe. It won't take long, and then perhaps I'll sneak outside to mail them and leave New Jersey forever. I remain, despite all that's happened, an optimist. What was it my namesake said? Thou art my hope in the day of evil. There is, surprisingly, some real wilderness left in New Jersey, assuming one wants to be a prophet. The hills to the west, spreading to the southern swamplands to the Delaware and beyond to Pennsylvania, provide shelter for deer, pheasant, even an occasional bear, and hide hamlets never visited by outsiders. Pockets of ignorance, some of them. Citadels of ancient superstition utterly cut off from news of New York and the rest of the state. Religious communities where customs haven't changed appreciably since the day of their settlement a century or more ago. 
Seems incredible that villages so isolated can exist today on the very doorstep of the world's largest metropolis. Villages with nothing to offer the outsider, and hence never visited, except by the occasional hunter who stumbles on them unwittingly. Yet as you speed down one of the state highways, consider how few of the cars slow down for the local roads. It is easy to pass the little towns without even a glance at the signs, and if there are no signs... And consider, too, how seldom the local traffic turns off onto the narrow roads that emerge without warning from the woods. And when those untraveled side roads lead into others still deeper in wilderness, and when those in turn give way to dirt roads deserted for weeks on end, it is not hard to see how tiny rural communities can exist less than an hour from major cities, virtually unaware of one another's existence. Television, of course, will link the two. Unless, as is often the case, the elders of the community choose to see this distraction as the devil's tool and prescribe it. Telephones put these outcast settlements in touch with their neighbors, unless they choose to ignore their neighbors, and so, in the course of years, they are... forgotten. New Yorkers were amazed when, in the winter of 1968, the Times discovered a religious community near New Providence that had existed in its present form since the late 1800s, less than 40 miles from Times Square. Agricultural work was performed entirely by hand. Women still wore long dresses with high collars, and town worship was held every evening. I, too, was amazed. I'd seldom traveled west of the Hudson and still thought of New Jersey as some dismal extension of the Newark slums, ruled by gangsters, foggy with swamp gases and industrial waste, a gray land that had surrendered to the city. Only later did I learn of the rural New Jersey, and of towns whose solitary general stores double as post offices, with one or two gas pumps standing in front. And later still, I learned of Baptist Town and Quaker Town, their old religious surviving unchanged, and of towns like Lebanon, Lansdowne, and West Portal, close to Route 22 in civilization, but heavy with secrets undreamt of by city folk. Mount Airy, with its network of hidden caverns, and Mount Olive, bordering the infamous Bud Lake. Middle Valley, sheltered by dark cliffs, subject of the recent archaeological debate chronicled in natural history, where a wanderer may still find peculiar relics of pagan worship. And, some say, hear the chants that echo from the cliffs on certain nights. And towns with names like Zarephath and Gilead, forgotten communities of bearded men and black-robed women, walled hamlets too small or obscure for most maps of the state. This was the wilderness into which I traveled, weary of Manhattan's interminable din. And it was outside Gilead where, until the tragedies, I chose to make my home for three months. Among the silliest of literary conventions is the Town That Won't Talk, the Bavarian village where peasants turn away from tourists' queries about the castle and silently cross themselves, the New England harbor town where fishermen feign ignorance and cast furtive glances at the traveler. In actuality, I have found, country people love to talk to the stranger, provided he shows a sincere interest in their anecdotes. Storekeepers will interrupt their activity at the cash register to tell you their theories on a recent murder. Farmers will readily spin tales of buried bones and of a haunted house down the road. Rural townspeople are not so reticent as the writers would have us believe. Gilead, isolated though it is behind its oak forests and ruined walls, is no exception. The inhabitants regard all outsiders with an initial suspicion, but let one demonstrate a respect for the traditional reserve, and they will prove friendly enough. They don't favor modern fashions or flashy automobiles, but they can hardly be described as hostile, although that was my original impression. 
when asked about the terrible events at Porth Farm, they will prove more than willing to talk. They will tell you of bad crops and polluted well water, of emotional depression leading to a fatal argument. In short, they will describe a conventional rural murder, and will even volunteer their opinions on the killer's present whereabouts. But you will learn almost nothing from them, or almost nothing that is true. They don't know what really happened. I do. I was there. I had come to spend the summer with Sar Porath and his wife. I needed a place where I could do a lot of reading without distraction, and Porath's farm, secluded as it was even from the village of Gilead three miles down the dirt road, appeared the perfect spot for my studies. I had seen the Porth's advertisement in the Hunterdon County Democrat on a trip west through Princeton last spring. They advised for a summer or a long-term tenant to live in one of the outbuildings behind the farmhouse. As I soon learned, the building was a long, low, cinder-block affair, unpleasantly suggestive of army barracks, but clean, functional, and cool in the sun. By the start of summer, ivy sprouted from the walls and disguised the ugly gray brick. Originally intended to house chickens, it had in fact remained empty for several years until the farm's original owner, a Mr. Bobber, sold out last fall to the Porths, who immediately saw that with the installation of dividing walls, linoleum floors, and other improvements, the building might serve as a source of income. I was to be their first tenant. The Porths, Sar and Deborah, were in their early thirties, only slightly older than I, although anyone who met them might have believed the age difference to be greater. Their relative solemnity and the drabness of their clothing added years to their appearance, and so did their hairstyles. Deborah, though possessing a beautiful length of black hair, wound it all in a tight bun behind her neck, pulling the hair back from her face with a severity which looked almost painful, and Sar maintained a thin fringe of black beard that circled from ears to chin in the manner of the Pennsylvania Dutch, who leave their hair shaggy but refuse to grow mustaches lest they resemble the military class they have traditionally despised. Both man and wife were hard-working, grave of expression, and pale despite the time spent laboring in the sun a pallor accentuated by the inky blackness of their hair. I imagine this unhealthy aspect was due, in part, to the considerable amount of inbreeding that went on in the area, the Porths themselves being, I believe, third cousins. On first meeting, one might have taken them for brother and sister, two gravely devout children aged in the wilderness. And yet there was a difference between them, and, too, a difference that set them both in contrast to others of their sect. The Porths were, as far as I could determine, members of a tiny Mennoninic order, outwardly related to the Amish, though doctrinal differences were apparently rather profound. It was this order that made up the large part of the community known as Gilead. I sometimes think the only reason they allowed an infidel like me to live on their property, for my religion was among the first things they inquired about, was because of my name. Sar was very partial to Jeremiah, and the motto of their order was, Stand ye in the ways, and see and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein. Chapter 6, verse 16. Having been raised in no particular religion except a universal skepticism, I began the summer with a hesitancy to bring up the topic in conversation, and so I learned comparatively little about the poorest beliefs. Only towards the end of my stay did I begin to thumb through the Bible in odd moments and take to quoting Jeremiah's. That was, I suppose, Sar's influence. I was able to learn, nonetheless, that for all their conservative aura, the Porths were considered, in effect, young liberals by most of Gilead. Sar had a bachelor's degree in religious studies from Rutgers, and Deborah had attended a nearby community college for two years, unusual for women of the sect. 
too, they had only recently taken to farming, having spent the first year of their marriage near New Brunswick, where Sar had hoped to find a teaching position, and, when the job situation proved hopeless, had worked as a sort of handyman carpenter. While most inhabitants of Gilead had never left the farm, the Poriths were coming to it late. Their families had been merchants for several generations, and so were relatively inexperienced. The inexperience showed. The farm comprised some ninety acres, but most of that was forest, or fields of weeds too thick and high to walk through. Across the backyard, close to my rooms, ran a small, nameless stream nearly choked with green scum. A large cornfield to the north lay fallow, but Sar was planning to seed it this year using borrowed equipment. His wife spent much of her time indoors, for though she maintained a small vegetable garden, she preferred keeping house and looking after the Porth's great love, their seven cats. As if to symbolize their broad-mindedness, the Porths owned a television set, very rare in Gilead. In light of what was to come, however, it is unfortunate they lacked a telephone. Apparently, the set had been received as a wedding present from Deborah's parents, but the monthly expense of a telephone was simply too great. Otherwise, though, the little farmhouse was modern in that it had a working bathroom and gas heat. That they had advertised in the local newspaper was considered scandalous by some of the Order's more orthodox members, and indeed a mere subscription to that innocuous weekly had at one time been regarded as a breach of religious conduct. Though outwardly similar, both of them tall and pale, the Porths were actually so different as to embody that maxim that opposites attract. It was that carefully nurtured reserve that deceived one at first meeting, for in truth Deborah was far more talkative, friendly, and energetic than her husband. Sar was moody, distant, silent most of the time, with a voice so low that one had trouble following him in conversation. Sitting as stonily as one of his cats, barely moving, seldom speaking, remote and inscrutable, he tended to frighten visitors to the farm until they learned that he was not really sitting in judgment on them. His reserve was not born of surliness, but of shyness. Where Sar was cat-like, his wife hid beneath the formality of her order the bubbly personality of a kitten. Given the smallest encouragement, say a family visit, she would plunge into animated conversation, gesticulating, laughing easily, hugging whatever cat was nearby, or shouting to guests across the room. When drinking, for both of them enjoyed liquor, and curiously it was not forbidden by their faith, their innate differences were magnified. Deborah would forget the restraints placed upon women in the order and would eventually dominate the conversation, while her husband would seem to grow increasingly withdrawn and morose. Women in the region tended to be submissive to the men, and certainly the important decisions in the Poroth's lives were made by Sar. Yet I really cannot say who was the stronger of the two. Only once did I ever see them quarrel. Perhaps the best way to tell it is by setting down portions of the journal I kept this summer. Not every entry, of course, mere excerpts. Just enough to make this affidavit comprehensible to anyone unfamiliar with the incidents at Porth Farm. The journal was the only writing I did all summer. My primary reason for keeping it was to record the books I'd read each day, as well as to examine my reactions to relative solitude over an extended period. All the rest of my energies, as you will no doubt gather from the notes below, were spent reading, in preparation for a course I planned to teach at Trenton State this fall. Or planned, I should say, because I don't expect to be anywhere around here come fall. Where will I be? Perhaps that depends on what's beneath those rose-tinted spectacles. The course was to cover the Gothic tradition from Shakespeare to Faulkner, from Hamlet to Absalom Absalom, and why not view the former as Gothic with its ghost on the battlements and concern for lost inheritance? 
To make the move to Gilead, I'd rented a car for a few days and had it stuffed full of books, only a few of which I ever got to read. But then I couldn't have known. How pleasant things were at the beginning. June 4th. Unpacking day. Spent all morning putting up screens, and a good thing I did. Night now, and a million moths tapping at the windows. One of them as big as a small bird. White. Largest I've ever seen. What kind of caterpillar must it have been? I hope the damn things don't push through the screens. Had to kill literally hundreds of spiders before moving my stuff in. The Poreth supposedly renovated this building only a couple of months ago, and already it's infested. Arachnidae. Hate the bastards. Why? We'll take that one up with Sigmund someday. Daydreams of Revenge of the Spiders, writhing body covered with a frenzy of hairy brown legs. Egad, man, that face, that bloody torn face, and the missing eyes. It looks like... No! Jeremy! Killing spiders is supposed to bring bad luck. Insidious Sierra Club propaganda masquerading as folk myth? But can't sleep if there's anything crawling around, so it's swat or stamp on whatever I can. Supper with the Porths. Began to eat, then heard Sar saying grace. Apologies, but things like that don't embarrass me as much as they used to. Is that because I'm nearing 30? Chatted about crops, insects, humidity, very damp area, band of purplish mildew already around bottom of walls out here. Sar told of plans to someday build a larger house when Deborah has a baby, three or four years from now. Intends to build it out of stone. Then he shut up, and I had to keep the conversation going. Hate eating in silence, animal sounds of mastication, bubbling stomachs. Deborah joked about cats being her surrogate children, all seven of them hanging around my legs, rubbing against my ankles. My nose began running and my eyes itched. Goddamned allergy. Must remember to start treatments this fall when I get to Trenton. Deborah sympathetic, Sar merely watching. She told me my eyes were bloodshot, offered antihistamine. Told them I was glad they at least believe in modern medicine. I'd been afraid she'd offer herbs or mud or something. Sar said some of the locals still use snake oil. Asked him how snakes were killed. Quoting line from Vathic, The oil of the serpents I have pinched to death will be a pretty present. We discussed the wisdom of pinching snakes. Apparently there's a copperhead out back near the brook. The meal was good, lamb and noodles, not bad for $20 a week since I detest cooking. Spice cake for dessert, homemade of course. Deborah's a good cook. Handsome woman, too. Still light when I left their kitchen. Fireflies already on the lawn. Never seen so many. Knelt and watched them a while, listening to the crickets. Think I'll like it here. Took nearly an hour to arrange my books the way I wanted them. Alphabetical order by authors? No. Chronological. But anthologies messed that system up, so back to authors. Why am I so neurotic about my books? Anyway... They look nice there on the shelves. Sat up tonight, finishing The Mysteries of Udolpho. Figure it's best to get the long ones out of the way first. Radcliffe has unfortunate penchant for explaining away all her ghosts and apparitions. Really a mistake, and a bore. All in all, not exactly the most fascinating reading, though a good study in romanticism. Montoni, the typical Byronic hero-villain. But can't demand students read Udolpho too long. In fact, had to keep reminding myself to slow down, have patience with the book. Tried to put myself in frame of mind of 1794 reader with plenty of time on his hands. It works, too. I do have plenty of time out here, and already I can feel myself beginning to unwind. 
what New York does to people. It's almost 2 a.m. now, and I'm about ready to turn in. Too bad there's no bathroom in this building. I hate pissing outside at night. God knows what's crawling up your ankles. But it's hardly worth stumbling through the darkness to the farmhouse and maybe waking up Sara and Deborah. The nights out here are really pitch black. Felt vulnerable, standing there against the night, but, but what made me even uneasier was the view I got of this building. The lamp on the desk cast the only light for miles, and as I stood outside looking into this room, I could see dozens of flying shapes making right for the screens. When you're inside there, it's as if you're in a display case. The whole night can see you, but all you can see is darkness. I wish this room didn't have windows on three of the walls, though that does let in the breeze. And I wish the woods weren't so close to the windows by the bed. I suppose privacy is what I wanted, but feel a little unprotected out here. Those moths are still batting themselves against the screens, but as far as I can see, the only things that have gotten in are a few gnats flying around this lamp. The crickets sound good. Sure don't hear them in the city. Frogs are croaking in the brook. My nose is only now beginning to clear up. Goddamn cats. I'll walk to town tomorrow. Must remember to buy some contact. Even though the cats are all outside during the day, that farmhouse is full of their scent. But I don't expect to be spending that much time inside the house anyway. This allergy will keep me away from the TV and out here with the books. Just saw an unpleasantly large spider scurry across the floor near the foot of my bed. Vanished behind the footlocker. Must remember to buy some insect spray. June 11th. Hot today, but at night comes a chill. The dampness of this place seems to magnify temperature. Sat outside most of the day finishing the Maturin book, Melmoth the Wanderer, and feeling vaguely guilty each time I heard Sara or Deborah working out there in the field. Well, I've paid for my reading time, so I guess I'm entitled to enjoy it, though some of these old gothics are a bit hard to enjoy. The trouble with Melmoth is that it wants you to hate. You're especially supposed to hate the Catholics. No doubt its picture of the Inquisition is accurate, but all a book like this can do is put you in an unconstructive rage. Those vicious characters have been dead for centuries, and there's no way to punish them. Still, it's a nice, cynical book for those who like atrocity scenes. Starving prisoners forced to eat their girlfriends, etc. And narratives within narratives within narratives within narratives. I may assign some sections to my class. Just before dinner, in need of a break, read a story by Arthur Mockin, Welsh writer, turn of the century, though think the story set somewhere in England. Old house in the hills, dark woods with secret paths and hidden streams. God, what an experience. I was a little confused by the framing device and all its high-flown talk of cosmic evil, but the sections from the young girl's notebook were staggering. That air of paganism, the malevolent little faces peeping from the shadows, and those rites she can't dare talk about. It's called The White People, and it must be the most persuasive horror tale ever written. Afterwards, strolling toward the house, I was moved to climb the old tree in the side yard. The Porths had already gone in to get dinner ready and stood upright on a great heavy branch near the middle, making strange gestures and faces that no one could see. Can't say exactly what it was I did or why. It was getting dark, fireflies below me and a mist rising off the field. I must have looked like a madman's shadow as I made signs to the woods and the moon. Lamb tonight, and damn good. I may find myself getting fat. Offered again to wash the dishes, but apparently Deborah feels that's her role, and I don't care to dissuade her. So talked a while with Sar about his cats, the usual subject of conversation, especially because 
Now that summer's coming, they're bringing in dead things every night. Field mice, moles, shrews, birds, even a little garter snake. They don't eat them, just lay them out on the porch for the poorths to see. Sort of an offering, I guess. Sar tosses the bodies in the garbage can, which, as a result, smells indescribably foul. Deborah wants to put bells around their necks. She hates mice, but feels sorry for the birds. When she finished the dishes, she and Sar sat down to watch one of their god-awful TV programs, so I came out here to read. Spent the usual ten minutes going over this room, spray can in hand, looking for spiders to kill. Found a couple of little ones, then spent some time spraying bugs that were hanging on the screens, hoping to get in. Watched a lot of long-legged things curl up and die. Tended not to kill the moths, unless they were making too much of a racket banging against the screen. I can tolerate them okay, but it's the fireflies I really like. I always feel a little sorry when I kill one by mistake and see it hold that cold glow too long. That's how you know they're dead. The dead ones don't wink, they just keep their light on till it fades away. The insecticide I'm using is made right here in New Jersey by the Ortho Chemical Company. The label on the can says, Warning for Outdoor Use Only. That's why I bought it. Figured it's the most powerful brand available. Sat in bed reading Algernon Blackwood's Witch Cat Story, Ancient Sorceries, nowhere near as good as Machin or as his own tale, The Willows, and it made me think of those seven cats. The Porths have around a dozen names for each of them, which seems a little ridiculous since the creatures barely respond to even one. Sasha, for example, the orange male, is also known as Butch, which comes from Bouche, mouth. And that's short for Eddie LaBouche, so he's also called Ed, or Eddie, which in turn come from some friend's mispronunciation of the cat's original name, Itty, short for Itty Bitty Kitty, as he was quite small when they got him. And Zoe, the cutest of the kittens, is also called Bozo and Bizbo. Let's see, how many others can I remember? I'm just learning to tell some of them apart. Felix, or Flixie, was originally called Paleface, and Phaedra, his mother, is sometimes known as Fuddy, short for Fuddy Duddy. Come to think of it, the only cat that hasn't gotten multiple names is Blotta, Sar's cat. All the others were acquired after he married Deborah, but Blotta was his pet years before. She's the oldest of the cats and the meanest. Fat and sleek, with fine gray fur darker than silver gray, lighter than charcoal. She's the only cat that's ever bitten anyone. Deborah, as well as friends of the Porths, and after seeing the way she snarls at the other cats when they get in her way, I decided to keep my distance. Fortunately, she's scared of me and retreats whenever I approach. I think being spayed is what's messed her up and given her an evil disposition. Sounds are drifting from the farmhouse. I can vaguely make out a psalm of some kind. It's late, past eleven, and I guess the Porths have turned off the TV and are singing their evening devotions. And now... All is silence. They've gone to bed. I'm not very tired yet, so I guess I'll stay up a while and read some. Something odd just happened. I've never heard anything like it. While writing for the past half hour, I've been aware, if half-consciously, of the crickets. Their regular chirping can be pretty soothing, like the sound of a well-tuned machine. But just a few seconds ago, they seemed to miss a beat. They'd been singing along steadily ever since the moon came up, and all of a sudden they just stopped for a beat, and then they began again, only they were out of rhythm for a minute or two, as if a hand had jarred the record, or there had been some kind of momentary break in the natural flow. They sound normal enough now, though. Think I'll go back to Otranto and let that put me to sleep. 
It may be the foundation of the English Gothics, but I can't imagine anyone actually reading it for pleasure. wonder how many pages I'll be able to get through before I drop off. June 12th. Slept late this morning, and then, disinclined to read Walpole on such a sunny day, took a walk. Followed the little brook that runs past my building. There's still a lot of that greenish scum clogging one part of it, and if we don't have some rain soon, I expect it will get worse. But the water clears up considerably when it runs past the cornfield and through the woods. Past Sar out in the field. He yelled to watch out for the copperhead, which put a pall on my enthusiasm for exploration. But as it happened, I never ran into any snakes, and have a fair idea I'd survive even if bitten. Walked around half a mile into the woods, branches snapping in my face. Made an effort to avoid walking into the little yellow caterpillars that hang from every tree. At one point, I had to get my feet wet because the trail that runs alongside the brook disappeared and the undergrowth was thick. Ducked under a low arch made by decaying branches and vines, my sneakers sloshing in the water. Found that, as the brook runs west, it forms a small circular pool with banks of wet sand surrounded by tall oaks, their roots thrusting into the water. Lots of animal tracks in the sand. Deer, I believe, and what may be a fox or perhaps some farmer's dog. Obviously a watering place. Waded into the center of the pool. It only came up a little past my ankles, but didn't stand there long because it started looking like rain. The weather remained nasty all day, but no rain has come yet. Cloudy now, though. Can't see any stars. Finished Otranto, began the monk. So far, so good. Rather dirty, really. Not for today, of course, but I can imagine the sensation it must have caused back at the end of the 18th century. Had a good time at dinner tonight, since Sar had walked into town and brought back some wine. Medical note, I seem to be less allergic to cats when mildly intoxicated. We sat around the kitchen afterward, playing poker for matchsticks. Very sinful indulgence, I understand. Sar and Deborah told me quite seriously that they'd have to say some extra prayers tonight by way of apology to the Lord. Theological considerations aside, though, we all had a good time, and Deborah managed to clean us both out. Women's intuition, she says. I'm sure she must have it, she's the type. Enjoy being around her, and not always so happy to trek back outside through the high grass, the night dew, the things in the soil. Gotta remember, though, that they're a couple. I'm the single one, and I mustn't intrude too long. So left them tonight at eleven, or actually a little after that, since their clock is slightly out of kilter. They have this huge grandfather-type clock, a wedding present from Sara's parents that has supposedly been keeping perfect time for a century or more. You can hear it's ticking all over the house when everything else is still. Deborah said that last night, just as they were going to bed, the clock seemed to slow down a little, then gave a couple of faster beats and started in as before. Sara examined it. He's pretty good with medical... Sara examined it. He's pretty good with mechanical things, but said he saw nothing wrong. Guess everything's got to wear out a bit after years and years. Back to the monk. May Brother Ambrosio bring me pleasant dreams. June 13th. Read a little in the morning. Loafed during the afternoon. At 4.30, watched The Thief of Baghdad. Ruined on TV and portions omitted, but still a great film. Deborah puttered around the kitchen and Sara spent most of the day outside. Before dinner, I went out back with scissors and cut away a lot of ivy that has tried to grow through the windows of my building. The little shoots fasten onto the screens and really cling. Beef with rice tonight and apple pie for dessert. Great. I stayed inside the house after dinner to watch the late news with the Porths. The announcer mentioned that today was Friday the 13th, and I nearly gasped. 
I'd known on some dim automatic level that it was the 13th, if only from keeping this journal, but I hadn't had the faintest idea it was Friday. That's how much I've lost track of time out here. Day drifts into day, and everyone but Sunday seems completely interchangeable. Not a bad feeling, really, though at certain moments this isolation makes me feel somewhat adrift. I'd been so used to living by the clock and the calendar. We try to figure out if anything unlucky happened to any of us today. About the only incident we could come up with was Sars getting bitten by some animal a cat had left on the porch. The cats had been sitting by the front door waiting to be let in for their dinner, and when Sar came in from the field he was greeted with the usual assortment of dead mice and moles. As he always did, he began gingerly picking the bodies up by the tails and tossing them into the garbage can, meanwhile scolding the cats for being such natural-born killers. There was one body, he told us, that looked different from the others, rather like a large shrew, only the mouth was somewhat askew, almost as if it were vertical instead of horizontal, with a row of little yellow teeth exposed. He figured that whatever it was, the cats had pretty well mauled it, which probably accounted for its unusual appearance. It was quite tattered and bloody by this time. In any case, he bent down to pick it up, and the thing had bitten him on the thumb. Apparently, it had just been feigning death, like a possum, because as soon as he yelled and dropped it, the thing sped off into the grass with Boada and the rest in hot pursuit. Deborah had been afraid of rabies, always a real danger around here, rare though it is, but unfortunately the bite hadn't even pierced the skin. Just a nip, really. Hardly a Friday the 13th tragedy. Lying in bed now, listening to sounds in the woods. The trees come really close to my windows on one side, and there's always some kind of sound coming from the underbrush in addition to the tapping at the screens. A million creatures out there, after all. Most of them insects and spiders. A colony of frogs in the swampy part of the woods, and perhaps even skunks and raccoons. Depending on your mood, you can either ignore the sounds and just go to sleep, or, as I'm doing now, remain awake listening to them. When I lie here, thinking about what's out there, I feel more protected with the light off. So, I think I'll put away this writing. Hey everybody, Tycho here. I wanted, just wanted to say thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate everybody who has continued to listen and uh, anybody who's new to the podcast. Welcome, we're glad to have you here. Um, I have a lot of plans uh, for, getting, for, for uh, expanding the brand, as it were. I'm, I'm going to be getting my computer back sometime, hopefully, in the next couple of weeks here. And once that's done, I am going to uh, start working on some other stuff that I've been um, kind of excited about doing. So I'll hopefully get all of that done and be able to get some more stuff uh, going here and get the whole Weird Tales podcast network going. That's not a thing that's going to happen. Uh, but... Um, I'm really excited about that. I'll let you all know what's going on when that happens. In the meantime, just a couple other things I wanted to say. Number one, uh, this week I put in an appearance on the uh, Lit Gaming Arena podcast. I talked for about an hour on Ocarina of Time, Final Fantasy VII, and various other video game-related things. Uh, So go ahead and give them a listen. It's the uh, Ocarina of Time is Overrated episode, which just came out August 4th or August 5th, uh, depending on when it actually came out, um, it, it's, uh, definitely, it's definitely one of my better podcast appearances, and that's including all 200 or so episodes of this little show. Also, uh, number two, if you like the show, if you want to, uh, if you want to show me some love, you can go on iTunes and give me a rating and a review. I would really appreciate that. That would, that would really help me out. And I, I really, I don't like asking that. It makes me feel really self-conscious, but um, I want to I want to be able to expand the brand. I want to be able to reach more viewers. And 
getting rating and reviews is what drives us up the iTunes chart and what will eventually, with your help, get me on the front page. Okay, so um, if you could give me a rating and a review, that would be great. Even, uh, by the way, if it's something negative, if you have a criticism you'd like to make, those especially I want to hear because if there's something critical about the podcast, I want the chance to be able to fix it so it's not like a super huge problem. Uh, and then the third thing is, oh, the third thing is that I posted this on my Twitter, but I know there's a lot of you who don't follow me on Twitter, uh, which is fine, but I'm just going to let you know. Um, I've been an actor for most of my life. I've appeared in over 60 stage shows. I've done a lot of stage work, um, and one of my dreams that this podcast will, I don't know, hopefully help me get into is that I've always wanted to do like voiceover work or voice acting, specifically voice acting. I'd love to do voice acting. Um do like audiobooks, stuff like, you know, just stuff like that, stuff that I can do with my voice because I feel like I'm pretty talented with my voice. Um, and I don't have any idea how to get into that. So I figure probably the first step would be to build a portfolio. So this is where I come to all of you for help. If any of you would like uh, somebody to do a voiceover or do some voice acting for you, I am more than happy to sit down and record something. Uh, I, I am even willing to do work for free because I'm just trying to build a portfolio and build credentials and get some street cred for all of that work. Uh, so if if you like the podcast, if you like the sound of my voice, if you think that I could be a good fit for whatever it is that you're trying to fill, I'm, I'm happy to audition for you. I do not assume that I am good enough to be cast automatically in anything. I am perfectly happy to go through the audition process uh, if you need me to, and that's really all there is to that. I'm super self-conscious about that too, so I'm sorry. So if you have any interest in that, you can contact me either through Twitter. My Twitter handle is at WeirdTalesPod. Feel free to follow me just for funsies because I'd love to have you there. I post stories. I talk about stuff. Just, you know, I reply to people. Um, just, you know, if you feel you have to, don't feel obligated. Or you can email me at theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to email me about anything, really, you can email me about that. I'm always happy to receive emails. So there we go about that. Anyway, that's it. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it, and I hope that you all have a great week. The Events at Porth Farm Part 2 will be coming next week, and the week after that you'll be getting Part 3. So this is going to be a three-part one, and uh, hopefully I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you continue to enjoy the podcast and the show. Thank you for listening. Have a great night.